KHMP. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us today Pat Duffy, who is the state representative from the 5th Hamden District, otherwise more commonly known as the Holyoke District, except it's not just Holyoke anymore. There is also one precinct in Chicopee. But it is one of the uh, few, I think, two or three districts in the state that are essentially a district, a house district that is a city, a municipality. So I think that's really interesting. Pat Duffy, thank you so much for being with us. You haven't been on, I think, since the campaign a while ago. We certainly hope you can be with us uh, on a more regular basis going forward. I think it would be useful for some of our listeners to say, okay, Pat Duffy, kind of a familiar name, sort of, kind of, but spend a minute with us. Tell us what you were doing and who you were working for. Uh, Obviously, I know you were in the legislature as as an aide, but tell us about who you were and uh, then we're going to get to the bills you're supporting, why you're advocating for them, what's important to Holyoke and to hear us in Western Massachusetts this session. But talk to us. Who are you, Pat Tuffy? <laughs> who, who am I? Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, it's been too long and hopefully we can do this more often. I'd love that. Uh, so I moved out here to the Pioneer Valley in the late 90s. I am the classic, like I lived in Metro Boston. Um, went to school there, started my professional career there, and uh, decided to go to grad school, ended up at UMass Amherst. So I came out to the Pioneer Valley, I was living in South Hadley Falls, and uh, I and I was like, why, why would I leave? This is a great region. It's a really wonderful region, it's got everything. Um, you went to UMass Amherst? I went to UMass Amherst. I was a grad student there, and I and that is where. Are you going to tell us? The, are you going to tell us what? Or I'm going to have to pry this out of you. <laughs> what, oh, I was a grad. I was a. Um, I was going to be an academic. I was going to get my PhD in sociology, um, but I got wooed by the labor movement because I got really involved in the grad student union. Uh, and so the grad student union is part of the UAW, actually, and is part of a broader union uh, of workers here in the Pioneer Valley. And it's just, it's really seductive. I mean, everywhere I've ever been, I'm, I always want to build community, and what better way to do that I can't than think of a, uh, to get involved in your local union? Can't think of a better application of sociology than right. working for a union. <laughs> yeah, well, right. the, the Labor Relations Center, uh, the Labor Center at UMass is part of the sociology department now, in fact. It has been for some Now years. it is. Yes. It was not at the time. They were, they were great allies, but now it's housed in the sociology department. So you gave up your academic career, your budding academic career, and you did what? So I, uh, well, I, uh, first I started working for the union while I was uh, still a grad student. And so shall I tell the story of how you and I first met, Bill? Ooh. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We, ha- we have FCC regs and all sorts of things that are governing <laughs> us. But, but if it passes that, well, if it passes that test, sure. Yeah. This, I mean, this may sound familiar to folks following uh, the local news. I love the university. Uh, they're a great asset. They give, they provide great jobs here, but sometimes the administration uh, is a little antsy around burgeoning labor unions. And the undergrad students as resident assistants 
were forming a union. They, you know, they had their election. Everything was legal and set to go. And the university refused to sit down and bargain with them. So some of us who were in the grad student union decided it was time for some nonviolent civil disobedience. And we got arrested as part of a sit-in. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then a certain local then, lawyer yeah. who takes on great causes named Bill Newman, um, you know, help, helped us out. So I do, I, um, oh boy, you may, I, I, um, I didn't plead not guilty. I pled, I, I, I was see, something without a finding. Yeah, it was continued without a finding for dismissal. Continued without a finding. <clears throat> without a finding for which I, uh, so, so so you'll be happy to know listeners that pat duffy does not have to worry about a criminal record probably not the first thing on her <laughs> mind this morning but uh, but it's on it's on my resume um <laughs> i got asked about it when i was when i was running as a state rep uh you know um yeah so yeah so, you know? so you worked with the the, the uh student union you uh and you that was a successful we should point out. Uh, in fact, the right. union was recognized, did bargain a contract and so on. Uh, so what did you do next? So I uh, worked for SEIU for a while, um, which allowed me to c keep working with um, with UMass and the higher ed unions at UMass. Service Employees uh, International Union. SEIU? Pardon? SEIU? S the SEIU union, which is now, now those workers are part of the MTA the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Okay. Um, and then from there, I just got more and more involved in Holyoke politics. There were a lot of really exciting new candidates uh, running in Holyoke politics. And um, I ran the campaign of the late, great Tim Purrington, um, who was the first openly gay elected official on the Holyoke City Council. Um, you know, I worked on Mayor Alex Morse's campaign, and then I worked on the campaign for City Councilor Aaron Vega, um, who is uh, the son of a great, uh, Aaron is a great man, and he's the son of a great Holyoke political leader, um, the late, great Carlos Vega, who oh. I was friends with. All right. And so you're working on all these political campaigns, and then you, and then you were working for uh City Councilor Aaron Vega, who became State Representative Aaron Vega, and exactly, and that, and I, I became his legislative aide. So I was Aaron's aide for seven out of the eight years that he was in the council, that he was in the legislature. Okay, and then drum rolls, please. Aaron Vega decided to not run for re-election, and you did. You and I did. I decided to run, and uh, and was uh, was. I was indeed elected during the pandemic. Like, yeah, it was it was a strange and interesting campaign. But we got to talk about a lot of important issues. I think all you keep talking about is the wonderful applications of your sociology interest. You are so right. You are so right. I think you know every everybody who's working on policy should go study sociology. True. Okay, we have a plug for UMass and its sociology department from, from, from I think, technically a dropout, right? <laughs> I did get 
get my degree. Oh, I, you... did, I did get a master's degree. Did you... I did get a master's degree. Got your so ma I am a proud graduate of the of the U.S. Uh, the UMass Sociology Graduate Department. Well, congratulations. I didn't think we were going to get to that point in this story, but we did. <laughs> we are speaking with Pat Duffy, who is the state representative from the 5th Hampton District, which is Holyoke Plus, a precinct in Chicopee. I think the precinct in Chicopee was just added because of redistricting and the need to keep the numbers uh, appropriate for a state representative district. Uh, representative Duffy, I would love to know, uh, now this is your uh, second term in the state legislature. Uh I think there was a transition period from being Aaron Vega's legislative aide, uh, which encompassed a, a large portfolio, to being the representative for, from the district itself. I'd like to know what you're focusing on this legislative session. What are the bills that are most important to you? So I have to start with, you know, there's an entire uh, agenda for the whole legislature Um that I think is really important, and this is a super large issue, but we have to talk about affordability, you know, the, as an entire legislature. So there's housing, uh, education, the cost of higher education, and there's healthcare. Uh, as a second term rep, like I've, you know, I've got my pieces of legislation that I'll talk about that um that address these issues but there's like an there's a whole agenda of other um pieces of legislation and policy change that that we need to work on um i one of the bills i'm most excited about is i have um co-filed a bill that's been on the agenda for a long time i think this is our time it's uh known as the cherish act so uh it has been filed by Sean Garbley and myself on the House side and Senator Joe Comerford um, with partnership from other senators on the Senate side. So we did, uh, as a legislature in 2018, we finally uh, revised the funding formula for K through 12, which needed to be done. Uh, but it's now it's time to really look at what's going on with public higher ed what's going on with debt, what's going on with affordability, what is going on with infrastructure on our public higher ed campuses. You mean they, they, they comes, that comes under the rubric deferred maintenance, which means we haven't paid to keep the buildings up, which are crucial because otherwise the bill comes due because the buildings fall apart, the roofs leak, all sorts of bad things happen. Let's go back for a second. Representative Duffy, what's the Cherish Act? The Cherish Act is it's a large omnibus bill. It's really ambitious and it addresses all of these issues from affordability and accessibility, uh, student uh, student loan debt and infrastructure. It's a huge bill. Um, but I think that gives us the platform to talk about how important public higher ed is. So is the Cherish Act a funding bill for higher ed? It's, it is, but not in the same way that um, the Student Opportunity Act. The Student Opportunity Act was, a, was very specifically about the Chapter 70 funding formula here in Massachusetts. There's not the same kind of um, mathematical pinpointed formula in the Cherish Act. It's an omnibus bill. Uh, so it 
uh, it does call for more funding in order to support, uh, you know, all of these all of these issues, but it doesn't have that kind of um, specific down in the weeds funding formula attached to it. So the Cherish Act is a funding formula for higher ed in the Commonwealth. Yeah, not not formula, but uh, yes, not a, formula. a call for more funding, a call for more funding for public higher ed. And I know that many of our listeners have been uh, thoughtful about and concerned about the new money, the uh, almost $2 billion, perhaps, that's coming into the state from the uh, fair share amendment. Is that money going to go to higher ed through K-12? Where's that money going to go? So, so there are um, two proposals out on the table right now. Um, the, there's the governor's proposal and the, the House, we have just finished our budget debates and uh, we have our proposal on the table. The Senate is about to take this up. Uh, the House and the governor have taken similar approaches where, uh, you know, all these smart number crunchers are see about a billion dollars one billion dollars coming from fair share revenue in the next tax year and in the house proposal we're splitting that 50 50 between education costs and transportation and infrastructure costs i think that's a good split i do they're both really crucial um needs you know all you have to do is drive around Western Massachusetts and see the need for road and bridge repair and we need better public transportation. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty serious lack as we all know. You can't live around here without a car, which is not how it should be. Uh, let me ask you this, the fair share amendment, which sometimes is uh, misnamed the, the millionaire's tax. The fair share amendment called for the split between transportation and education without stating what the split would be. Is, is this 50-50 split now a consensus among legislators? I, I, it, it, was, it was a consensus on the House side. Uh, you know, we'll see how the Senate tackles it and we'll see, uh, I mean, their budget proposal is coming out this week and they'll have their debates the week before Memorial Day. But I, you know, of course, there's there's always uh, debate and discussion on either end of the spectrum. But I I I think people feel pretty comfortable with that. Now, within education, what is it all? Is it the governor um, uh, focused more on early ed and uh, higher ed? The house maybe did a little more evenly, you know, pre-K through college. So we'll see what the Senate does. Um, we'll see what the Senate does. The, you know, that's what debate's all about. Yeah. We, we are speaking with State Representative Pat Duffy, uh, the representative from the 5th Hamden District, that's Holyoke, plus a precinct in Chicopee. When we come back from this quick break, I want to ask about state revenues, which I think we just reported are down significantly. And I want to know whether we have to really worry about that, because I am. And I hope you can put my mind at rest. We'll see right after this. Satisfaction. I have tried. I 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home edition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Pat Duffy. She's the representative from Holyoke, also has a precinct in Chicopee that she is the representative for and of. Representative Duffy, one of the topics that we have spoken with your colleagues who are on our show and regularly, is what committee assignments they have. I don't want people's eyes to glaze over, but committee assignments actually are the platform. They're they're the microphone for you as a representative to try to accomplish some of your legislative goals. And so it is an avenue, it is a mechanism to get from what you want to where you want. Let me try that again in English. It gets you where you want to go often. So what committees have you been assigned to and were these the ones you requested? Uh, thank you for asking me about that because e- even e- in some ways, even more than like very specific um, pieces of legislation, it is the committees where you learn about larger issues. And I'm vi- I've always been really excited about my committees. So both um, as a newly elected and then this past um, this past fall, I, there's two committees that I requested and I've always gotten them, uh, healthcare financing and higher ed. And that's because two of the most important institutions to me in Holyoke are the Holyoke Medical Center and Holyoke Community College. So I wanna be around those policy discussions. Um, 
plus I am I'm also a supporter of Medicare for all and uh, so it, it feels useful to be on healthcare uh, financing and getting to learn more about the Health Policy Commission, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in addition to that, I'm also, I got assigned to, I did not have the, um, I did not ask for this lofty uh, assignment, but I got uh, the assignment of Ways and Means this time, and I love it. Um, and and I am happy to go back to your conversation, your question about tax revenues. We're not dodging that. For for those who are at the commercial break, say no God. We're going to talk about tax <laughs> revenues. Um, but uh, the Ways and Means Committee, we had hearings all over the state. You get to hear from all kinds of agencies, constituents, and um, folks working in different parts of the Massachusetts government. Uh, also on veteran services, which gives me a place to um, be looking at and helping with the soldiers home. And I did not ask for this, but I'm I'm very excited about it. There's a new committee on agriculture, and I really I think that this is going to be my, um, you know, in the years to come. Should I be so fortunate to be reelected? This is really where I want to do a lot of work because we're in this great agricultural region. Um, I'm, I live in a city with food deserts and food insecurity, uh, and the pandemic showed what happens when we rely on these nationwide food chain supplies. They're um, dangerous and unreliable, and we, I think we've all got to figure this out, how to rely on regional agriculture. Representative Duffy, you just mentioned Holyoke Community College, one of the gems of your district. There's a new president. Uh, the, a beloved president is resigning. You have some thoughts about that you'd care to share? Yeah. Um, Christina Royal has been incredible. And I think she's, she's, the, she's the current president who is. She's the current president. She's the current president. Uh she has set a challenge before all of us. I was just at a retirement celebration for her last week, and she talked about, you know, yeah, I'm doing good work here, but it's not about me. I think that she, this is quoting Christina Royal. I've set up important structures and conversations and goals here so it's not about me i can i can pursue what i am looking to do next and this is an, a strong institution and we, I, do, I do want to point out on friday at 10 o'clock uh, the new uh, president-elect i think he's been approved by the state board but yes he's been he has set. been okay dr george timmons will be joining us on talk to talk at 10 o'clock on friday oh I, I so i have to admit i haven't had a chance to meet him yet so well welcome <laughs> join yes, us exactly uh, has holyoke community college been hurt in any permanent way by the pandemic we've heard a fair number of, re of reports about uh tuition uh tuition rising but also enrollment being down uh What's the story at Holyoke Community College? Can you help us on that? Uh, well, it it is um, it's part of a manifestation of definitely a statewide, maybe not nationwide, but I don't know, but a, definitely a statewide um, trend, which is 
the converse of what usually happens during economic downturns, enrollments in community colleges usually go up. Um, but in this time of economic uncertainty all across the state, enrollment has really gone down. Um, you know, they they saw, I don't know about, I don't think it's permanent. They have seen an uptick. Maybe it's following um, workforce trends too, um, where folks were still in all different kinds of ways recovering from the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, so they have seen a little bit of an uptick and they're optimistic about the fall. They have so much great programming, so much great workforce training. They are a vital resource for the region, but for Holyoke. Representative Duffy, we just have a minute left, but I did want to ask you this before we let you go today. And it's how you work as a delegation, the phrase I think that uh, Buzz had coined just before we went there, a delegation of one. But you represent a city, which is different yeah. from reps who have 45 different municipalities to represent. How does that work or does, and does it work differently? Does it change your job as a legislator to have essentially a city that you represent? I, I, I think it does. I think it does. I mean, there are other examples around here. Um, you know, I know Lindsay Sabadosa, uh, she represents many communities, but I'm sure Northampton is her main focus. Um, so that, you know, Mindy Dom and Amherst, but really like, I'm thought of as the Holyoke rep. Um, I think the key is having a close relationship with the mayor and as many city councilors as you can. And I have been really blessed that um, I, I've known Joshua Garcia. We, we served on the board of Nueva Esperanza like 20 years ago together. I've known him for ages. He affords me uh, 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 every other week um, regular meeting um we you know we communicate all the time and th it makes a huge difference we're going to leave it there we have been speaking with pat duffy she is the state representative from the fifth hamlin district that is mostly holyoke plus a precinct in chicopee we thank you for your time today and we hope we'll see you back here again really soon rep yeah thank you so much thank you so much it's been fun we'll be right back This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An accident that took place Friday on Route 2 near Dragon Hill Road in Shelburne is still under investigation by police. According to the Northwestern District Attorney's Office, the driver, Donna Woodcock, the former Greenfield High School principal and athletic coach, was flown to Bay State Medical Center in Springfield and is in critical condition. Woodcock's parents were passengers in the car and were also taken to the hospital with injuries. Woodcock's sister says a medical situation caused Donna to veer off the road and strike an embankment with the SUV rolling multiple times.
An East Hampton man is headed to prison after allegedly leaving the body of a woman in Westford in 2019. 59-year-old Daniel Paris pleaded guilty last week to the destruction of evidence and improper disposal of a body. Officials say that Melissa Mestry's body was discovered by a resident walking his dog. Westford and Massachusetts State Police conducted an extensive investigation during which they were able to identify both Mestry and Paris. Police believe Mestry died of a drug overdose on a drive back to Western Mass and Paris disposed of her body without notifying authorities. Investigators also allege Paris disposed of Mestre's possessions off the French King Bridge in Irving. Petrus was sentenced to seven to eight years in state prison. 182 voters turned out for the town meeting in Plainfield on Saturday. Judith Cole beat Olin Thompson for the contested seat on the select board, and Robert Melstrom was elected tree warden over Tim Crowningshield. Partly to mostly sunny today, a little breeze out of the north and a high of 64 to 68. Mostly clear tonight, evening temperatures, low 60s, overnight lows of 34 to 40. Brightest day of the week is tomorrow, sunny, a high of 70 to 74, upper 70s on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media. La Reserva Federal reforzó su lucha contra la alta inflación el miércoles al elevar su tasa de interés clave en un cuarto de punto al nivel más alto en 16 años. Pero la Fed también señaló que ahora puede detener su racha de 10 aumentos de tasas que han hecho que los préstamos para consumidores y empresas sean cada vez más caros. En un comunicado posterior a su última reunión de política, la Fed eliminó una oración de su declaración anterior que decía que podrían ser necesarios algunos aumentos adicionales de tasas. Lo con un lenguaje que decía que ahora sopesará una variedad de factores para determinar la medida en la que podrían ser necesarios futuros aumentos. El presidente Jerome Powell dijo en una conferencia de prensa que la Fed aún tiene que decidir si suspenderá sus alzas de tasas, pero señaló que el cambio en el lenguaje de la declaración confirma al menos esa posibilidad. Los aumentos de tasas de la Fed desde marzo de 2022 han duplicado con creces las tasas hipotecarias, elevado los costos de los préstamos para automóviles, préstamos de tarjetas de crédito y préstamos comerciales y aumentado el riesgo de una recesión. El último movimiento de la Fed que elevó su tasa de referencia a aproximadamente el 5.1% podría aumentar aún más los costos de endeudamiento. En otras informaciones, Holyoke Community College celebró el miércoles una ceremonia de jubilación que sirvió de homenaje al legado y logros de la presidenta Cristina Royal, quien anunció que se retira al final de este año escolar. La celebración contó con la presencia de estudiantes, facultad, personal, exalumnos, oficiales de la institución educativa y oficiales electos, quienes elogiaron y reconocieron los múltiples logros de la doctora Cristina Royal como la cuarta presidenta de Holyoke Community College y la primera mujer birracional en presidir la institución. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and... And we are talking baseball with the Duke. Duke Goldman, member of SABRE, a leading light in SABRE, Society of American Baseball Research, baseball historian and fan, and Northampton resident. 
who I know wants to talk to us today about Vida Blue, who has been much in the news and is an amazing story. If you don't know it, we're going to share it. But first, well, Duke, how about those predictions made by, what was this guy's name? Duke, Duke, Duke Goldman. Oh, yes. The Yankees were definitely going to be in the playoffs. The Mets were going to probably win the World Series. Atlanta was going to be contesting all the way through. Duke, um, let's just see. How are you doing on those predictions? Be- before you answer, Duke, it could be worse. You could be married to him. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we are kind of married here in sort of yeah, a, yeah, sort of, yeah, yeah, in a yeah. funny way. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, Duke, how, how are those I'm, predictions by one I'm Duke? Gonna how are you doing? cite to a line that John Heyman wrote in the Post the other day, which is he said, the only thing guaranteed in baseball is the contracts. Okay, so, you know, predictions, they're not really worth anything, and I don't really like to make them, but yeah, my heart got ahead of my head, and I said, oh, the Mets are going to win the World Series, and you know what, they still might, but they sure don't look like a World Series winning team. Neither do the Yankees, for that matter, Um, and the Red Sox all of a sudden look really good. Now, let's remember, it's early. Right, we haven't even gotten to a fourth of the way through the season. Will the Red Sox make the playoffs? I don't think so. Will the Yankees make the playoffs? Probably, although they are last in their division. The Yankees, let's be clear, are last. But as I was saying, as I was rehearsing the show for today, Duke, the Yankee fans like me, we have them exactly where we want them. We're underdogs. We're in last place. Oh, the Yankees are such an underdog team. (laughs) I couldn't agree more, Bill. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Moving right along here. But, you know, I look at it this way. There are probably any number of clinics or hospitals that the Yankee teams have not filled up yet. Uh, although they're doing a pretty good job on having an entire team unable to yeah, take the Yeah, they're, they're replete with injuries. Now, Aaron Judge is coming back. That will help a lot. Playing the Oakland A's, which we'll get to in a little while, it certainly helps any team. The Oakland A's are playing the Yankees this – well, not as we speak, but this week. The Oakland A's, I learned last night when I was watching the game, the Oakland A's have the single worst run differential of any team in the history of baseball, I believe of major leagues going back over 100 years. Over this period of time, that wouldn't surprise me. They are horrendous. They have one kid, a rookie name, I think his name is Brian Rooker, B. Rooker, I forget his first name. I never heard of him before. And he's great, and everybody else is minor league level, pretty much. I will make this prediction. They will lose 100 games. Well, at the moment, they've lost three quarters of the game. Over three quarters. They're 8 and 28. (laughs) And you know what? The Tampa Bay Rays will win 100 games and probably more because they have the best run differential since the 1884 St. Louis Maroons, who I talked about last time. This is Dan. Their home record for the Rays is 19-3. and They're they're awesome. They are a great team. And the Mets, two first ballot Hall of Fame pitchers, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, are making more money than the entire Tampa Bay Rays team. Okay, so for those of our listeners who don't follow baseball, and for those who do, why is is the Tampa Bay Rays, why is that team so spectacularly good, given their they uh, have, minimal payroll? They have perfected the model of operating under constraint. 
they figured out how to do it. They know that pitching and defense is important. They know the value of a farm system. They know how to develop players. They don't go out and waste money on overpriced guys who are not worth it when they're 36 and 37 years old. And right now they've hit the sweet spot and all of their stars are in the early to middle phases of their career, right in their prime, getting better as we speak. So they have a pitcher named Shane McClanahan, who we will hear more about. He has won seven games. Even Garrett Cole for the Yankees has only won five. No other pitcher in baseball has won as many as seven. We don't talk as much about wins anymore because pitchers don't go deep into games, but McClanahan is just untouchable. Uh, they, they're doing it. They have the best pitching in baseball and the best hitting in baseball. Okay, so explain this to me. Tampa Bay has one of the smallest payrolls and has had for years one of the smallest payrolls in baseball, partly because they're not supported by their fan base very much. They, they play in an absolutely horrifying stadium. It's not much fun to go to. They are by far Unless and away. Unless you like catwalks. By far and away, it's an indoor stadium. It's, it's awful. It's awful from everything I've heard. They, they, they have an amazing team at the moment. They do. On the other hand, you have the worst team in baseball playing the Yankees this week. Uh, with a comparable payroll, and as we said, the worst team in baseball. How can two teams in the same kind of economic strata be so different? Because the Oakland A's are a team on the way down who are paying very little for cast-offs, who've traded away all of their talent, who have an owner that is moving the team as we speak and leaving for Las Vegas if he can pull it off. Um, the A's are about to become the third franchise in Oakland in the last 10 years to leave the city. So there will be no teams left in Oakland. And so the team is a relic of the past. They were good several years ago, but they got rid of all their talent. Duke, the, the Rays have been building. Duke, this is Dan. Can you tell me about data analytics? Is that a big part of this? Is It, it is. It, it is. I mean, but everybody has data analytics. Somebody told me recently the Red Sox have 35 people in their front office analyzing the data. It's more than data analytics. But the Rays were doing it a long ago. The A's actually were doing it before the Rays. We all remember Moneyball and, and Billy Bean. But, you know, in the end, if you don't have the talent, you don't win. And the A's no longer have the talent. Well, but why don't they have the talent? Everyone is uh, going out and looking at the same players in college and the minor leagues. Why is one team so good and one so bad? They're, everyone's playing on the same field. They are, but they're dealing. They're they're using different resources. They're employing them in different ways. And the A's have made a choice to strip the franchise bare. They've had great players. They just traded Sean Murphy to Atlanta. Their one last good piece. They let Matt Olson go. Great hitting first baseman who is also with Atlanta. They they gave up their talent. Okay, stay with this baseball analytics for one minute, if you would, please, Duke Goldman. Is that a fancy name for? information and mathematical form formulas being applied is that what we're talking about yes. baseball analytics it sounds like it's being you know it, it's it's weaponized you know information if you will and literally i mean you know now they're into you know things like launch angles and spin rates that nobody knew about before and they do matter 
you know, knowing how to approach in hitting can change a hitter from someone who, you know, hits five to 10 home runs a year to somebody who hits 20 to 25, if you know how to approach uh, an at bat, um, getting pitches that spin at a faster, greater revolutions per minute can make a pitch a better pitch and to turn a pitcher into, you know, a consistent winner. And they know how to dice it and, and slice it, if you will, and analyze it. Explain this to me, a term, a word that I didn't know existed in baseball until this year. Maybe I missed it. We used to have curveballs. We still have, but we don't hear much about that. We have fastballs, still have that ball. We have two-seamers and four-seamers, which I don't really completely understand why they're different, how they function differently. But there's a new, maybe not a new pitch, called the sweeper. What is the sweeper? The sweeper is a slider. (laughs) (laughs) that's it you know people always come up with new names and then it becomes the current lingo and everybody says look at that sweeper you know now the Mets have a pitcher Joey Lucchese who's throwing a churv and I like that because the churv is a combo pitch it's a change up and a curve and that makes sense to me the sweeper is nothing new you know so many things are old wine and new bottles and in some ways the analytics are on the one hand it's a revolution on the other hand it's simply taking data and mining it further different people can't they grip the baseball in different ways. Correct. And so forever they've been, they didn't always name it, but they just couldn't master a grip because it wasn't comfortable for their hands. Right. So the split fingered fastball is really a fork ball, which right. people have been throwing for Th- years. Thrown hard. Thrown hard. Correct. Um, they, you know, again, most of these things are not anything dramatically different. It's just somebody has a little more of a spin on it, has a bigger break, and, you know, somebody starts speaking about it. Next thing you know, it sweeps the country. And, and sometimes because of the biology of their anatomy, Sandy Koufax. Correct. Correct. He was just able to unjoint his, his He was his also shoulder. able to pitch on the best pitching mound anybody's ever developed. Look at Sandy Koufax's ERA in, in earn run average and at uh, Chavez regime, regime, uh, Ravine, the stadium. It was something like 1.27. Well, I saw him a number of times in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. I didn't see a big difference between what he did at Shibuya. Well, but the numbers tell you something different, and that's where the numbers matter. He was a great pitcher on the road, and he was an ungodly pitcher at home. His overall statistics, Sandy Kovacs is sadly, and I love him. The man is one of the two Jews in the Hall of Fame, and um, that means something to me. Um, he was a great pitcher. He had five phenomenal years, and he is one of the most overrated players in the history of the game. Really? Yes. Because he only had five, five great years. years. That's it. Now, had right. he not gotten injured and retired well, before I, he turned 31, that, that might be another story. I have a profound respect for you. Why don't we call it the five greatest years? They were among uh, the greatest years. Among the greatest. I think Pedro Martinez had five years he better struck than out, Sandy Koufax. He struck out five of the six Yank, first Yankees in the World Series. He was a heartbreaker. And he had a curveball that people marvel at. He was a great pitcher. He's just not one of the top 10, you know? This is the problem, you know? I always harp on the overrated players. Derek Jeter was a great shortstop offensively. His his new son in a few years is going to be better, going to have more range, you know? He's not one of the all-time great shortstops, not even close. Sandy Koufax is not Lefty Grove, who led the league in ERA nine times, who had a 17-year career and was 160 games above 500 in his career, is a way better pitcher than Sandy Koufax was. Way better pitcher. Career-wise. Career-wise. Right. 
and probably at his peak too. Because you know what? Lefty Grove in two years success in succession won 59 games and lost nine. Before we run, Duke, I want to know this. You said the mound at Dodger Stadium was built for Koufax. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm not saying they did it specifically for him, but it was a mound that was very high, and it so accentuated what Koufax was able to do. His his vertical left arm was accentuated. And since then, the mound's been lowered. Yes. 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 Well, all around baseball, but the Dodgers had exaggerated the man because, you know, this is what teams do. Because, you know, you know, pulling little tricks is, is not, didn't st- just happen with the Houston Astros. <laughs> Dan, when we take a break, can you play something that says Duke Goldman is totally wrong? Do you have a song that said that? About <laughs> I'm working on it. I'd like to apologize for things I said and or... Uh, Things that I will say. Tough to make make (laughs) predictions, particularly about the future. We're going to be right back more with Baseball with the Duke after this. Older than the screams Older than the teams There were three men down And the season was And the top Coming up right here on WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. One thing I like about working at ServiceNet is that in addition to being a manager, I can still be a clinician. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. For people working private practice who want to also still have a commitment to community mental health, working at ServiceNet gives the opportunity to do both at the same time. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton-based baseball historian and fan and author, Duke Goldman. Duke, I want to share two sentences from a piece in today's New York Times under the headline, When Vida 
was the word that said, wow. The left-handed blue, Vita Blue, 20, went 24-8 and eight with a 1.82 earn run average one season and pitched 24 complete games, including eight shutouts, and pitched 312 innings, the most in nearly 60 years by a pitcher, won the American League's Most Valuable Player Award and the Cy Young Award, and was one of the most amazing human beings to ever get on a major league field and pitch. He died recently. Your thoughts about Vita Blue? Vita Blue was a supernova. He came onto the scene suddenly, and before he even pitched a full season, he pitched a no-hitter in late 1970, and that's when I first heard of him. And he resonates with me particularly because 1970 was the first year I fully watched baseball. So I remember hearing, this guy Vita Blue pitched a no-hitter. Wow, okay. But then comes the next season. It's 1971. Wow. And, yeah, he just went off. He had, you know, in my lifetime, we could say Pedro Martinez, we can say Doc Gooden, we can say almost say Jacob deGrom, a few other people who had unbelievable seasons. Mark Fidrich. Vita Blue was as good, if not better, than most of them. That Mark, one year he had. Mark Fidrich, who was famous for talking to the baseball. Right, but who had an incredible rookie season. And Vita's year was also, it, was his first, it wasn't technically a rookie season, but it was his first full season. And Vita won the MVP and the Cy Young Award in his first full season, which nobody ever did before and nobody has done since. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if anybody ever will. I mean, he, he just had an unbelievable um, year, and he also is the answer to a trivia question, who is the last uh, switch hitter to win MVP? Because Vida was a switch hitter. <laughs> is that true? Correct. <laughs> yes. Um, 104 lifetime batting average, not anything you know to speak of at the plate, but he was a switch hitter. And you know, he looked like he was going to have a Hall of Fame career. He, he came well, close. 73, he had a great year, too. Yeah, he won 20 games two more times. He ended up with a 209 and 161 lifetime record. I believe it was a 3.27 earned run average. A little bit short on what they now calculate wins above replacement. Usually 50 is the benchmark for Hall of Fame, approximately. He had a 45.1. So he was a little short of those metrics, but... Three 20-game winning seasons, and he came into 1972 as off of this year, the, the stats that Bill mentioned, and owner Charlie Finley decided to lowball him. And they had a bitter, bitter contract dispute, rancorous dispute. In this which was before free agency. Before Players free had agency, and... and Charlie Finley offered him $50,000 after an unbelievable year, and he wanted a little more. It got to the point where the commissioner of baseball, Bowie Kuhn, stepped in to force Finley to at least negotiate with Blue, and Blue did not start the season until about six weeks in. And it, it, it led to bitterness on his part, and he was never the same. Now. And we have to say there were three years in a row where there's amazing—we remember the Reggie Jacksons. Yes. Three years in a row where they won the World Series, and two of those years, 71 and 73— it could be argued that Vita Blue carried them to the World Series. Tell us about the story that was repeated in the Sunday Times and is in today's paper as well about Charlie Finley, the owner of the A's, who tried to get Vita Blue to change his name. 
Well, Charlie Finley, you know, by the way, Catfish Hunter was a, was a made-up name as well. You know, Charlie Finley told him, you're going to say that your name is Catfish, that you went out and, you know, came home with a string of catfish. So Charlie Finley went to Vita Blue. He was really an equal opportunity offender. He, he, everything was about promotions. And he said to Vita, hey, I want you to be the name True Blue. I want you to include that in your name and make that your identity. And I'll pay you $2,000. Okay, and Vita Blue looked at him and he said, "Why don't you change your name to True O Finley?" <laughs> because Vita was his father's name, his father who died when he was 15 years old, and he was proud of that name, and he wanted to be Vita Blue. And this is what Charlie Finley did. He, he demeaned him. He didn't want to be Mudcat Grant. No. No, although he became a black ace, as Mudcat Grant wrote a book, a uh, pitcher who won 20 games in 1965, I believe, and wrote a book. There is, to this day, 15 African-American pitchers who have won 20 games, and Vita Blue is one of them. Um, he, was, he had cancer. He was uh, having chemotherapy recently, and he appeared at ballparks at this year, walking around with a cane, and Mike Norris, who was another one of those black aces who won 20 games for the A's in the early 80s, said that, that, that Blue was really struggling. And, um, you know, he was a good man, and he was a good pitcher, and he struggled. He struggled later in life. He, had, he used cocaine, like a lot of players did, but he got thrown in jail for it. You know, he had a story. He had a life, and he was, he was phenomenal to watch. Well, we mourn his passing. We do. He was a phenomenon. He was. He and was. he made people's lives better. Even the immortals are mortal. Yes. Duke Goldman, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. This has been Talking Baseball with the Duke. It's the best. Million Dollar Man. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. WHMP Northampton and W. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, Bill, there was a really interesting article that I read by Jane Kaufman from the Berkshire Eagle, which really grabbed my attention. And uh, I have uh, not lost my interest in it. It's, I will read the headline. Windsor couple plans to open LGBTQ plus high school in Cummington, where they will be acknowledging, celebrating who these kids are. Uh, we have with us today the people that were planning to make this school happen for LGBTQ plus kids. They are uh, Dr. Allison Druin and Dr. Ben Peterson. And welcome so much to the show. 
Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. So I am really interested. I guess the first uh, question for you is what brought you to an interest in opening up an LGBTQ plus school in Cummington, Massachusetts, of all places. Let's start with you, Allison. Thank you. Um, great question. Uh, it actually started very personally from our lived experience from our family. Uh, we, have, uh, we had a, um, a, a, a son who was struggling and uh, was in his own right an LGBTQ sorry, LGBTQ teen who um, he wanted to be identified, he wanted to be truly identified, affirmed, heard, but he he needed support um, in terms of learning and in terms of, uh, in terms of creativity and so on. And we were looking for a school for him. Um, And uh, surprisingly, there was nothing near where we lived. There wasn't even anything in the Northeast. And we came to find out there was nothing in the United States. There was no school that focused on solely um, these teens who were struggling with uh, anxiety and depression. What age and and what grade when he was struggling with anxiety and depression? he uh, He was in high school, his first year of high school. And um, and it is uh, it does seem from uh, others we've spoken to uh, clinicians as well as educators that this is this is quite a time where uh, many students are struggling with anxiety and depression and suicide ideation victimization you name it okay um, and if you are LGBTQ uh, particularly if you identify as trans and non-binary. You report the the reports of struggle are so much higher. Um, you know, recently the Trevor report came out and said seventy three percent of these youth report experiencing anxiety. I mean, it's just it's off the charts um, for these kids. And uh, and so personally, um, we we started thinking, wow, if we can't do this for our own kid, we can hopefully we can help others. I should have pointed out during the introduction that, in fact, you are a couple, and we're talking about your the child that you both uh, share as parents. So let me ask you, Ben Peterson, uh, when we talk about um, kids who are struggling, that's not a new thing. When we talk about kids who, are, uh, who identify as LGBTQ+, and they feel uh, that they can't be themselves— Obviously, we know that, but these are the days uh, when we all talk about and aspire to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So are we really talking about segregating kids who identify as gay from a general population? Is that a healthy thing? I mean, Plessy Ferguson was all about separate but equal, but we thought that having everyone together in the same classroom, differences makes us stronger. What do you say to that? You know, it's a great question and something that we have spent quite a lot of time uh, thinking about and talking to our son as well as others. And the reality is that the world is a big place and that there are a wide range of solutions that are available and needed. Um, There are many, many private schools in the world that all have missions and visions to cater to specific kinds of students. There are private schools for boys, some for girls, some that are training to be a particular kind of athletes or in the arts. 
And what we have found is that these kids can often thrive um, in many different kinds of environments, but some of them really have not figured out how to thrive without more support. And so we have no concern, with, you know, a wide range of other solutions, but we're trying to provide a solution for kids that do want to be in a place that focuses on their needs with a, um, a large number of the staff that will be have their own lived experience in this community, or some like us who uh, are heterosis but um, strong allies because we have seen what even a strong kid goes through um, in, all, in often hidden ways. Like we knew with our kid since age three that uh, he, you know, would literally throw a fit if you tried to buy him clothes in the girl's, um, you know, uh, section of a store. And so from a very early age, we saw who this kid was, but it wasn't a problem for him until, you know, he became a little bit older and we started to become more aware of what was needed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, Dr. Allison Druin, what is your plan? Could you, could you describe your vision, where you intend to do it, what it's going to look like? Well, we are, uh, we are planning to uh, be um, in the Berkshire foothills on a 300-acre farm uh, that actually um, that will support uh, kids. Uh, first, first and foremost, we'll be opening, um, the goal is to open in uh, 2025 as a, a therapeutic day school for LGBTQ uh, students. Um, and and we're talking about uh, high school students, and um, and in with this kind of school, it's not going to be like we're only going to take ninth graders. We're going to we are going to be um, supporting kids uh, who come and need us in any in any grade of of high school, and uh, the goal is to start with 36 kids, grow eventually to 150 kids. Um, but uh, as we grow, we will um, expand to being uh, a therapeutic boarding school as well as a therapeutic day school. Well, please, um, uh, you're, you got your doctorate in education. What is a therapeutic school? That's a very good question. Um, it's essentially to say that therapy and wellness is integrated into your day of learning, and it is a part of your learning. So, for example... Um, the, uh, we will be supporting uh, we'll be supporting kids with farming and the arts. Farming can be therapeutic. It, it can enable kids to connect to the outdoors um, in physical and uh, emotional ways with with animals, with uh, with picking fruit and so on. Um, arts, again, therapeutic. Um, but again, we will be having clinicians on staff as well as teachers. And it's important because uh, they're going to have a full um, they're going to have a full four-year high school program if if they so choose, um, and it will be integrated um, uh, at what I call it, and it will be integrated in with uh, times for group therapy, one-on-one -on -one therapy, family therapy, and it's very important to say that the family will be an important part of that learning experience as well, because 
as we know, it's much harder to learn and, and explore who you are when you're, when you're not feeling that well. And, um, and that's the goal is, uh, is gender affirming healthcare as well as, uh, as all the kinds of things that, um, that go along with, with good learning. Dr. Ben Peterson, while uh, Allison Druin is, uh, is going to be taking care of the sort of educational therapeutic side of the house, you're going to be sort of the chief operating officer. Is this going to be a residential school? It will start off as a day school uh, because we have this amazing almost 9,000 square foot um, historic Victorian house that we're starting the planning for renovating. Uh, and then when we, uh, we actually already are designing the broader campus that will have place for uh, dorms and uh, residents. So we will grow into being a residential school. So um, this was the property of William Cullen Bryant. For those who don't know, in the hill towns where we live in, in, uh, in Cummington and the surrounding communities, including the one in which I live in Ashfield, William Cullen Bryant's name is very well known as an attorney, as a uh, sort of philanthropist, as a poet. His daughter, I've heard of Julia Sands Bryant, um, and I see that you're going to name the school J.S. Bryant School. Could you tell us why? Yes. Um, we, uh, when we were first exploring names for the school, um, and we, we, we knew that this school had, had been, uh, um, actually, we knew that the, the land um, was actually once owned by William Cullen Bryant, uh, in the 1870s, and he gave it to his oldest daughter, Fanny. Um, but it's Julia Sands Bryant that we actually named the school after. She supported her father, William Cullen, um, in his business affairs and nursed him until the end of his life. Um, but once he passed away, Julia left the country, and, and she moved to Paris where she lived with her same-sex partner uh, for the last 30 years of her life. Um, and so... We actually named the school after her, hoping that someday um, our teens, our young people, are not going to have to move away from their families out of state, out of, even out of the country, um, to be who they want to be and to be with who they want to be with. I, you called her, you referred to her as her partner. I think that historically she was known as her chum, right? Yes, the New York Times article when Julia Sands Bryant um, died, they uh, reported that uh, Julia Sands had left her estate to her, end quotes, chum. And that was actually, that article was what sent us on uh, a research chase to figure out, hmm, does this mean what it, we think it is? And through books and through other artifacts, uh, we, we've since confirmed as much as we can uh, what, what we tell you today. Can you, hi, this is Bill. Can you tell us where the school stands in terms of accreditation and other kinds of permissions you need from the state, when it will open, that sort of thing? Yes. Um, as I said, we'll, uh, we'll be opening uh, only a small day school um, in 2025. We are starting the work now um, in understanding accreditation. Um, it, because it is a private school, there are different kinds of accreditation that it needs to do. It needs to have happen um, on the local level and on the state level, as compared to if this were going to be a public school. So we are in contact with uh, uh, with uh, some of the leaders um, 
in um, in our area, and uh, and we're we're um, pr feeling pretty confident that um, we're taking the right steps to move forward to get that accredit accreditation. I'd be interested to know about the financing. Is this going to be expensive for students to go to? Um, so, great question. The there's all there's as you can imagine to uh, create a completely new organization is incredibly complicated and we are working on many parts of it as we as we are designing and planning this uh, we are in practice uh, uh, created a nonprofit organization so it is a nonprofit school we are working what is that organization all, called oh oh it is the uh, JS JS Bryant School Inc. <laughs> okay, J.S. Bryant School, Inc., I think you paid $1.15 million, according to the article, for the Bryant Farm. And how much do you need to raise in order to make this actually happen? Right, so we are moving forward in our a large set of fundraising activities. Um, we need about $5 million to open the school. Um, I don't think I'll bore you with the details, but that covers everything from infrastructure to site to renovation to hiring staff before there is uh, uh, revenue. Going back to your initial question, it is a very high, um, there's going to be a high degree of support for the students uh, because there will be a nursing staff and therapists uh, as well as farmers and teachers. The farm, uh, I'll answer maybe another question. Um, it is not going to be a profit-making farm. It will provide a lot of the food and um, uh, be a big educational resource, but it will also be, uh, you know, costing money. So the tuition will be substantial, and we're very aware of that and are, um, have a range of ways we're thinking to make sure that we have an equitable solution that can bring in a broad range of students. One is this is a school that is attracting a lot of philanthropic attention, and we fully expect that we will have philanthropic money to provide scholarships to uh, lower the price for students that need to. The other thing is that in practice, uh, some students will get support from their uh, uh, from, the, from, from the school system and from the state. Uh, uh, it will be officially a special needs um, uh, It'll support special needs kids, right? And uh, so it will be a place that can get municipal support as well, which will lower the tuition cost to individual students. We're going to take a break. Before we take that break, if people want to support your endeavor, particularly financially, who do they get in touch with? Where do they, how do they get in touch with you? So the easiest way is at the website, jsbryantschool.org. Uh, they can also email us at just at info at jsbryanschool.org, and we'll be happy to talk to anybody. Thank you so much. Sure. That's, that's S as in uh, Stephen, J.S. Bryant School. We're going to take a break. We are talking with Dr. Allison Druin and Dr. Ben Peterson. We're going to be back talking with them about this uh, concept of having a school which is a safe and nurturant environment for LGBTQ plus teens. We'll be right back after these messages.
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. Having a hard time with your mental health or substance use? You have options. The 24-7 Behavioral Health Helpline is your front door to care. Call 833-773-2445 to speak with a trained staff member and get connected to the support you need. Want to see someone right away? Visit mass.gov cbhcs to find your local community behavioral health center, a service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Dr. Allison Druin and Dr. Ben Peterson of Windsor, who have purchased the former J. Uh, Julius Sands Bryant estate in Cummington and have a plan to create a uh, safe and nurturing uh, high school uh, for LGBTQ plus uh, kids. Uh, to be admitted to. I was just looking at the plan as described in the Berkshire Eagle. Uh, I'll start with you, Ben Peterson. The, um, we're talking about a pretty grand, ambitious design. It looks like Kuhn Riddle Architects uh, of Amherst. Or, uh, uh, the intention is to have them design the buildings and Berkshire Design Group of Northampton to design the landscaping for uh, this uh, ambitious project of turning this uh, former farmland and this 23-room farmhouse into a place where uh, we can have residential and day commuting students and uh, very large staff in order to accomplish your goal. So um, tell us about why all this um, big, ambitious uh, plan for this previously beautiful farm in Cummington. Well, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the need of these kids, um, and we want them to have a special place where they can feel safe and excited. Uh, the, the site is pretty remarkable. You kind of drive up around a curve and you reach the hill, and you uh, really can't help but feel inspired. And so we brought in this team to help us envision how to take 
you know, it's been a, it's been kind of, uh, has not been maintained that well in recent decades, and so we really need to get it up to, um, you know, up to snuff. And so we're working with the groups that you just said. We've also hired an amazing uh, local farmer, uh, uh, Pepper Fournier Scanlon, that runs the nearby Two Mamas Farm, and she's helping us to develop an uh, organic uh, permaculture style uh, farm that is going to have uh, both be an educational center for the kids as well as providing significant amount of the food production uh, for the school as well. In fact, we just picked up our first five goats yesterday, so they will be uh, ready to start providing dairy along with our future cows. Bill, I'd be interested to know this. Uh, you say the school will be for LGBTQ youth, for high school students. I'm wondering whether or not this is a self-selecting group or whether that is a criteria or there are criteria for acceptance into the school? Okay, that is a question that we, uh, that actually our board struggled with um, to try and decide what, uh, what was the most, where was the most need and, and how were we gonna deal with this? Um, and what we came to understand is that there's a tremendous amount of resources for cis-hetero students, okay, that help meet, you know, their wide range of, of supportive needs. Um, but for LGBTQ youth, uh, there, is, there is a lot less that is available to them. Um, in fact, uh, from this uh, survey that the Trevor uh, Project uh, put out, uh, they pointed out um, that uh, uh, that the 30 of the 34,000 youth um, uh, from 13 to 24 years old that they surveyed, that they surveyed, 60% of these youth wanted mental health care support um, in the past year and weren't able to get it. Um, and so that and so the combination of not now I'm just going to say right out. Obviously, if you are in the LGBTQ community as a teen, it does not mean that you suffer from anxiety or that you suffer from depression um, or you're, you're struggling in, um, in more extreme ways, um, but there is, there is so much that, is, that people are, are struggling with um, that we have to acknowledge. And so that's why um, we chose our mission as a private school, not to be just for girls, not to be just for boys, not you know, not to be the traditional private school, but to focus um, to focus on a, an area of, of students that are in deep need. I wish we had more time to talk about this. It's a really important discussion. I'd love to have you back as this process goes forward. Ben Peterson, if people want to support um, your effort to uh, create a high school. Um, you're going to be opening in 2025. The plan is about 36 9th through 12th graders uh, there at the uh, uh, the J.S. Bryant School in Cummington. How can they support? How do they get in touch with you? Well, thanks. I, the easiest way to get started is by going to our website at jsbryantschool.org. That's J for S like Julia Sands. Um, you can learn about the... Uh, the plan, see some videos, uh, pictures, and uh, 
uh, donate money or email us um, just at info at jsbryanschool.org and we'll be happy to uh, touch base with you. We'll be having various community events over the summer and uh, you can uh, perhaps come and visit, go for a walk on the beautiful land uh, and uh, join us in creating this amazing resource. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us today and good luck with this project and uh, keep us uh, keep us in touch so that as this process goes, we know what's going on. Thank you so much and good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to be back with some uh, really um, uh, important people in the affordable housing arena here in this region right after these messages. Stay with us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An accident that took place Friday on Route 2 near Dragon Hill Road in Shelburne is still under investigation by police. According to the Northwestern District Attorney's Office, the driver, Donna Woodcock, the former Greenfield High School principal and athletic coach, was flown to Bay State Medical Center in Springfield and is in critical condition. Woodcock's parents were passengers in the car and were also taken to the hospital with injuries. Woodcock's sister says a medical situation caused Donna to veer off the road and strike an embankment with the SUV rolling multiple times. An East Hampton man is headed to prison after allegedly leaving the body of a woman in Westford in 2019. 59-year-old Daniel Paris pleaded guilty last week to the destruction of evidence and improper disposal of a body. Officials say that Melissa Mestry's body was discovered by a resident walking his dog. Westford and Massachusetts State Police conducted an extensive investigation during which they were able to identify both Mestry and Paris. Police believe Mestry died of a drug overdose on a drive back to Western Mass and Paris disposed of her body without notifying authorities. Investigators also allege Paris disposed of Mestre's possessions off the French King Bridge in Irving. Petrus was sentenced to seven to eight years in state prison. 182 voters turned out for the town meeting in Plainfield on Saturday. Judith Cole beat Olin Thompson for the contested seat on the select board, and Robert Melstrom was elected tree warden over Tim Crowningshield. Partly to mostly sunny today, a little breeze out of the north and a high of 64 to 68. Mostly clear tonight, evening temperatures, low 60s, overnight lows of 34 to 40. Brightest day of the week is tomorrow, sunny, a high of 70 to 74, upper 70s on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Being nosy is a good thing. Like if you're installing a pool or putting in a fence, know what's below. Call 811 before you dig. Natural gas runs underground, along rights of way and into our homes. By calling 811, your local gas provider will send someone out to mark the location of the pipeline. Remember, know what's below. Call 811 before you dig. It's the law. Being nosy can keep you safe. From the member companies of the Northeast Gas Association. 
Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And I have my notepad poised for my pen because I'm about to learn a whole lot about something that uh, I do and we all should care deeply about, which is affordable housing, uh, which uh, the governor has made one of her priorities and so many of us for so long have recognized as an important, uh, such an important part of making our communities vibrant communities. We have three literally experts, three uh, directors. Um, we, ha we have with us today Alexis Breitenecker, who is the Executive Director of the Valley Community Development. We have Keith Ferry, who's President and CEO of Wayfinders, and Gina Govini, who is Executive Director of the Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority. And I want to thank you all for coming. Keith, let's start with you. Um, in this region, my little town of Ashfield, affordable housing is a big topic uh, for a lot of reasons. I will just tell you, we had our annual town meeting on Saturday, and during our break, three people surrounded me and told me uh, what a problem it was that their children couldn't, they were raised here, mm -hmm. and couldn't afford to stay in Ashfield, which is really heartbreaking. So mm -hmm. talk to us. Well, thanks for the opportunity to come today. And yes, it's a, it's a conversation at every dinner table, uh, many meetings across the, the region and across the Commonwealth. Uh, the lack of housing, the lack of housing people can afford um, is something that has really come, come home to roost here in the Pioneer Valley. Um, part of the reason is we haven't been doing enough in terms of creating the housing supply that we need to meet, um, to meet the demographics that we have. We have a, an aging population that's living longer, healthier, staying in their homes. We have a huge millennial population that's looking to create new households, and we haven't been building the housing supply to meet that need let alone those folks who can't afford the housing stock because the prices have gone up. Uh, as um, I've talked about in many venues, we did a housing study with the UMass Donahue Institute over the last couple of years. I'm sorry, what institute? The UMass Donahue Institute. Uh, this is their Economic and Social Policy Institute. And they um, identified a couple of things relative to supply that I'll call out. One, that we have a housing supply gap, not enough housing to meet the needs of our region now or into the future. In fact, they said 11,000 units short. And that made me call my... What region are we talking about uh, here? The Pioneer Valley, Franklin, Hampshire, and Hamden County. Uh, and so that made me think about what, what can we do about that? We're already, we're all building housing, um, um, but we're not doing enough and we haven't been doing enough for some time. Um, so I called my colleagues in housing here and several others um, back in May, knowing that we're going in with the new governor, a new legislative session, 
and said, we need to come up with some, some ideas, some organizing, some action to really increase the scale of what we're doing. But what are we doing? And so I asked everybody, what are you doing? What are you planning to do over the next five years in terms of creating new housing, mostly affordable housing? It's mostly nonprofits and cities and towns from our region. Um, and uh, what, what we found was people were active. We're doing, we're doing good work. Um, so there are 51 different projects lined up in 18 cities and towns, and we're going to create over 1,200 units of housing. That sounds pretty good. It's going to take us five years, though. We've got an 11,000-unit housing supply gap. We're not closing that gap quickly at this pace. Well, so we need to do a lot more. And so that's, that's what we're, we're all trying to do, but we need the resources to do it, and we need um, and the support from cities and towns and the state. Well, the that's what I wanted to, to ask. Are we talking about... Uh, Public funds being invested, private funds, a partnership between the two. How is this going to happen? All of the above, um, and it, and and many different housing types. So there's uh, and, and there's deeply affordable housing that's needed for people who have very low incomes. Uh, there's housing uh, that's needed for home ownership opportunities. We have where's the starter home today, right? If you're trying to get into that starter home, we've seen the in increase in prices in housing and homes in particular. Uh, we have a 1% vacancy rate on ownership housing. So there is a very tight market there. Um, and so if we want to both retain people in our region and support people in our region, we need to build housing types of all types with all types of resources. Well, let, me, let me move to you, Gina Govina. Uh, you're executive director of the Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority. So uh, there's this affordability gap. There's these special challenges in communities like ours, rural communities in Western Massachusetts, how are we going to do this? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, thank you. Well, you know, in communities like ours, one of the, the key issues is scale. And you're, you're looking at many programs, and though we are looking at collaborations, as, as Keith mentioned, uh, in terms of partnering with both public and private funds, you still need scale. And when you look at a small community, let's say Ashfield, uh, we happen to manage the only affordable housing in Ashfield. You do, the big Ashfield house. <laughs> all, all 18 units, which is a lot for that community. And looking at some of the programs that are out there, you really need a minimum of 30 to 40 units before you can get to something that pencils out, as we say, uh, makes sense financially. So oh, is that what that means, pencils that's, out? That's what that Got means. It. So, you know, it's very difficult to get to that level, to get to that scale, both in terms of parcels, infrastructure, and then, frankly, in some of the towns that we work in, just looking at planning staff who are available to really think about what's needed to make the zoning happen, to make the, the, the land use happen so that we can have those, those, those buildable lots or... In some cases, the um, the public willingness to support affordable housing. I think in some cases, folks feel like, you know, I can afford to live here. But in other cases, what we see is that it's hard to sometimes come back. Um, you know, we just opened a uh, senior housing um, that's all affordable in Sunderland, um, and we had a couple of great examples of folks who said, you know, I grew up here, and I left because I couldn't afford to live here anymore. In some cases, they went to Maine. In some cases, they moved to Greenfield. In other cases, they moved to Springfield, other places. And then they came back, either for personal reasons or, in some cases, to take care of elderly family. And they couldn't find an affordable place to live. So Sanderson Place is affording folks that opportunity. Um, and others who have lived here their whole lives that just still are struggling. 
um, with with retirement income. So it's 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 a challenge. But you know what we're trying to do is focus those public and private resources to work in scales that work in our communities. I wish you could talk about why affordable housing, and I'd like to put that in air quotes, but why it is so important, not just, or even primarily, really, for the people who get the housing, but why it's so important for the communities in which the housing is located. That's what I'd like you to talk about. Thanks, Bill. What a great question. So this is Alex from Valley Community Development, and I'll um, try to answer that, and then I'm going to look to Keith and Gina to help with that answer, too. So part of it is that um, a robust and vibrant community has people of all different income levels and backgrounds living in it. So without affordable housing, people at the sort of thresholds of society often can't be in that space. And so then you end up with communities that gentrify or communities that tend to be more monoculture. Um, so the building affordable housing in a bunch of different affordability spheres. So we're talking it for people at a very low income, people with sort of moderate income, and then people that are just sort of like median area income folks. Um, we need housing across all of those barriers and thresholds. And um, we also need market rate housing and housing that is, you know, nice and lovely and beautiful and sort of expensive. Um, we have to have all of the pieces across the whole span to make a community vibrant. Um, otherwise, yeah, go ahead, Bill. And I'd like you to add, all three of you, I'd like to, you to address this question of what does affordable housing do to housing prices for those who say, well, my house is my mo most important asset. How does this affect me very personally? Because I think it's beneficial, but I don't think that's self-evident or necessarily intuitive. Uh, today, the housing that we're all developing are, uh, you know, first-class housing facilities. We are both required to, to meet certain standards by the state, and all of us are trying to exceed those standards. I know Alexis is doing a terrific passive house project in, in Amherst right now. We're planning to do one also in Amherst, and we're doing uh, developments in Agawam, South Hadley, and Holyoke uh, that are really um, – uplifting the community. These are some of the biggest investments these communities will see. Um, you know, um, the, the Gina was talking about scale. We are working at that scale of 40 to 60 to 70 units. We're talking about 25 to $35 million housing projects. So there are huge economic investments in the community that are for the future. Uh, and to have that healthy housing continuum that Alexis is talking about is for the future of our commonwealth, literally. If we don't have that, people will leave the region. We already have a, a flat to declining population, and that has real implications, whether it be for our schools, uh, for our healthcare systems, in terms of being able to maintain and have the healthcare facilities we need, and even for our representation in Congress. So if we wanna stabilize our population and actually grow our population in a healthy way that meets community needs and scale, we need affordable housing, we need um, more, what, housing for people who are working at all different income levels, and we, we need market rate housing. We need the whole continuum. I get that, but I wanted to ask you, Gina uh, Govini of, of Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority. So when, uh, don't we need people to be able to earn salaries to maintain housing as well as the housing itself? We do, and I think it's it's one of the a common uh, misperception that folks in affordable housing do not work. Um, most of them do work. A lot of the folks who are living in homeless shelters also get up in the morning and go to jobs. A lot of the housing that we're creating, as Alexis said, you know, we're we're looking at housing at different income gears. These folks all work. They have jobs. Some of them are 
working as as wait staff. Some of them are working part-time jobs. Some of them are working part-time jobs because they're also taking care of other people. They're taking care of children. They're taking care of elderly parents. So these these are not folks who are just sitting around looking for a handout. They are they are actually they're actually contributing to society. One of the other, I think, misperceptions of affordable housing, we also, as landlords, contribute to municipal economies. We, we are also contributing to the tax rolls. And as development and growth perpetuates more, more and more. So, you know, for example, in Sunderland, we took a, a home that was just a single family home that had not been occupied for a few years. And it's now it's now a, more of a commercial tax base for the town of Sunderland. So that's something that you know, we're, we're, we're creating more opportunity for the whole town. I just want to follow that with another question, um, which is we have someone in our town who feels that uh, land trusts are antithetical. We all support the notion of conserving our land and mm-hmm. treating it properly and not having overdevelopment and not having cookie cutter housing. And at the same time, it's kind of foreclosing the possibility of using land to promote affordable housing. Where do you land on that as somebody who is so interested in regional housing? Well, there are different types of land trusts. And I will say that I I applaud folks who are trying to create and preserve land for the purpose of affordable housing or for the purpose of inclusion of affordable housing with sort of our our local tapestry of working land. And I think both, both are really important. Um, I do think that there is, in Franklin County in particular, there is a lot of available land in some of our village centers that could be used either through infill housing or through small developments uh, that, that would not necessarily in any way need, need protection if it were made available through, through market resources or through municipal uh, negotiations. Uh, Alexis Breitnecker, in a couple of minutes before we take a break, uh, what does community development do to provide the kinds of services that people need if they're coming out of homelessness or um, and, and trying to move into affordable housing situations and and rejoin their communities or join their communities as you know sort of a fully housed people? Mm-hmm. What kind of services do you provide? Sure. So um, Valley Community Development isn't actually a service provider. Um, the way we try to get our housing to function is by partnering with available service providers in the community. So the Pioneer Valley has a bevy of case management providers through a number of different organizations. And one of the, the most important things to make housing successful for folks coming out of you know past histories of trauma, um, destabilization in their lives, domestic violence, like whatever is contributing to someone's potential instability in housing, they need supportive services around it. And one of the things that the state is trying to do is really dump money into the availability of case management services. Um, so I don't think that any of us as housing providers would say that we are particularly skilled at doing case management. What we need is really good case management on the ground in the community. And as housing providers, we partner with those organizations to help stabilize folks once they move into housing. And here in the studio, we're, we're blessed with an all-star crew of housing providing experts in Alexis Breitenhiker of the Valley CDC, of Keith Ferry of Wayfinders, and Gina Govini of Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority. We're going to be back and continue talking about affordable housing right after this.
Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million. A bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Keith, we were having an interesting conversation during the, the break at Keith Ferry of Wayfinders. Can, uh, could you talk to us about that? So, you know, the, um, one of the things when we talk about housing today, often people are talking about the challenges and the crisis, and all those things are real that we just talked about and we can continue to talk about for some time. And it becomes to think, people begin to think it's intractable, like we can do nothing about it. Uh, but there are real things that we can do about it, and there are real things in front of us uh, as everyday citizens, as uh, folks who vote uh, for our state representatives and our federal representatives in terms of uh, things that we want them to do to support uh, creating that healthy housing continuum that we were just talking about. At the state level, for example, uh, coming up this legislative session will be a five-year opportunity to create the capital budget for housing. It's called the Housing Bond Bill happens every five years. The last one was in 2018. It was $1.8 billion. It was the biggest housing bond bill we've ever had. It's not going to be enough to do $1.8 billion again if we're going to meet the needs of the Commonwealth, not just here in the Pioneer Valley, but across the Commonwealth. So that's not, people have talked about, let's double that number uh, to see if we can make some real headway in scaling up what we can do in terms of housing production from working in rural communities to working on permanent supportive housing, to making moderate income housing, to creating home ownership opportunities. We need more resources at the state level. And at cities and towns, there's a couple of opportunities there. Um, we all have to go through each city and town. 
and we, we need folks, one, to, to come out who are supporting housing, to come out and support. There's often a very local uh, and vocal and small opposition that gets a lot of airtime, but there are many people, I think, understand these issues and understand the needs because they're facing it in their own household. Mm. And so we need people to come to those meetings in support of projects and to think about the future of your communities. Uh, communities can create things like 40R districts, which is a zoning district, to be able to say, this is where we want affordable housing in our town, uh, versus developers just coming in and saying, hey, you don't have enough housing, so we're going to put it here. Um, and working with developers like us, nonprofit developers who are mission-driven, we care not only about creating affordable housing, but about the communities in which we work uh, in a way that we are, we are created from those communities, we live in those communities, and I think it's a real opportunity to plan for the future collectively together. So there's the work at the state level creating the resources, and there's the work at the city and town level creating the environment uh, for the future. Uh, we, all towns and cities change, right? If you go back 50 years ago, uh, Northampton was, didn't look like it does. Asheville was, was different. And so there's an, there's an evolution. Nothing stays the same. But let's direct that future in a way that meets the needs of the people who are here and the people who are going to be here so that we can have a vibrant region. And Gina Gavoni, I think I mispronounced your name. I'm so sorry. We're just meeting. Uh, by the way, I knew Joni Bernstein. I think she was oh, your predecessor yes. quite yes. well. Um, but uh, you're the executive director of Franklin County Regional Housing. Is it, in, in trying to promote a regional housing uh uh, situation in a rural area, uh, listening to Keith talking about the need to do it, not just to do it across the Commonwealth in urban and rural settings and suburban settings as well. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain your focus on what your title is <laughs> versus the goal of promoting housing in all communities? I think what we really need, and Joni is actually still very involved in our real estate development committee. We're happy Hi, to have her. <laughs> yes, very happy to have her leadership. Is you have a, a, a multitude of strategies, uh, you know, just to meet the different needs. So in some cases, we are looking at larger for us, um, 30 to 40 unit rental, affordable rental developments. In other cases, it's homeownership. One of the things that we're looking at right now is a rural homes program, uh, which will be a receivership initiative. Um, this, the first home that we're looking at is in Greenfield, but we are looking at other homes in more rural parts of the county. So, you know, it, it's, it's not a one size fits all. That being said, we are coming together as a Franklin County region to do a housing production, a regional housing production report um, that is, is currently being drafted. We're very excited about this because it will hopefully sort of laser focus in on some of the teachings and learnings that we got from the UMass Donahue Institute report and really tell us in in West County, what is really needed? What can we do there? What are the specific challenges that we have in our, the central part of our county, and and so forth, so that we can put a real a real roadmap in place. And when you talk about a roadmap, Keith was just talking about the need to sort of help communities develop zoning uh, changes, and their zoning bylaws reflect these goals of having diverse communities where people can afford to live. How do you do that? Well, uh, I think one great example most recently is Montague, the the town where we are we are uh, we are housed. Our office is housed at minimum. Uh, there is a 40s, 40R zoning overlay there, which promotes affordable housing in a specific region of Montague and Turner's Falls, and uh, and that that's really helpful. And the community, as Keith said, really came together to support that. 
um, through education. So it's that that's one just one example, but um, very effective. And uh, we only have a minute left, but I wanted to ask you, uh, Alexis. It looks like we have no time. I am so sorry I misread the clock. I thank you all for what you're doing every day and for being with us today. For listeners, thank you for joining us. Remember, walk the walk. We live in one of the most beautiful places in the country, the hill towns and valleys that we call home here in western Massachusetts. At the Franklin Land Trust, we're working with landowners and community members to protect the landscapes that give us productive farmland, clean water, and healthy woodlands. We don't have to travel too far these days to see places where those sorts of things are just a memory. Our staff and volunteers have helped us to protect more than 32,000 acres so far here in our region, and we hope that you'll consider supporting our efforts to take care of the land that we all love. The farms that give us fresh local food, the riverways that give us clean water, and the forests and wildlife habitats that provide us all with healthy air. For more information on our work of landscape conservation, please visit our website at franklinlandtrust.org. That's franklinlandtrust.org. And thank you for your consideration. WHMP Northampton.